Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Precisely. That's exactly what I think the medical community needs to begin uniting is to figure out um, how our diet and how food becomes a tool in the toolbox so that we don't become solely reliant on uh, medications, um, surgery, and other more traditional procedures. And we have a more truly um, patient-centered approach that uh, is more comprehensive. And, you know, I also believe very strongly that health care is actually what it happens to a patient between the visits that they have to a doctor's office or a hospital. And so how do we address and amplify our understanding? I'm Dr. Rupi, and this is the Doctor's Kitchen podcast, the show about food, medicine, lifestyle, and how to improve your health today. And today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. William Lee. He's an internationally renowned physician, scientist, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Eat to Beat Disease. His groundbreaking work has led to the development of more than 30 new medical drugs and has impacted more than 50 million people worldwide and covers more than 70 different diseases, including cancer, diabetes, blindness, heart disease, and really he's one of the true pioneers of this food as medicine movement that started way before i even started thinking about the doctor's kitchen and we talk a little bit at the start about how how he along with my mum and a few other pioneers in this field were really the inspirations behind me even looking at the research um, and his talk can we eat to starve cancer which is on ted it's had over 11 million views and counting has appeared on a number of different uh, news stations, CNN, CNBC, has been featured by USA Today. He's definitely one of the um, most sought after doctors in this field. Um, and he's super passionate about the future of health as well. He firmly believes that a, a better future can be achieved by using science to shatter the barriers of the past and he collaborates with like-minded leaders, innovators, and cultural changers striving to make the world a better place. And he's a huge foodie at that as well. He's authored more than 100 scientific publications and leading journals. And his book, Eat to Beat Disease, is really a, a, a catalog of different studies that 
range across lab studies, animal models, but also human trials, looking at how food uh, can impact positively your immune system, your genetic integrity, your microbiota, of course, um, the process of angiogenesis, which is uh, something that we get into during the, the during the podcast, as well as uh, your ability to regenerate or stem cells as well. Um, as a hard-lined clinical researcher, someone who's been involved in pharmaceutical development, to bring this level of rigor to the science of food as medicine, something that he is a true believer in, um, is an absolute pressure and, and, and a real sort of uh, a huge credible addition to this field. And that's why I was so keen to have him on the podcast. And uh, unfortunately, we had to do it um, over Skype. Um, there were some bandwidth issues, but luckily we managed to uh, edit it. So it's nice and seamless. So it should be a good listening experience for you. Um, but I, I really do uh, advise you, you, you pick up copy of the book because i think it will give you a lot more rounded perspective on why i'm so passionate about this and why i really do think the future of medicine involves nutrition as a as a clinical tool in our toolbox that is an addition to medicines and surgical interventions things that i still perform and and uh, prescribe every single day that i'm working in the nhs um but uh, something that I think has been massively overlooked and he's a real pioneer as well, looking at future developments of things that we're not even thinking about right now. Um, I, I really think that I could do another podcast with him about some future developments in a whole bunch of other fields uh, that we didn't have time to go into. But um, I, I think you're, if you're a foodie and you, you love uh, flavor as well as function, which is my motto in the kitchen, you are going to absolutely love this episode. Um, and I, I just want to let you guys get into it. So without further ado, this is Dr. William Lee talking about Eat to Beat Disease. Uh, enjoy this podcast. I wanted to start by uh, saying a heartfelt thank you to you. Um, you won't know this, but back in 2009, I uh, had atrial fibrillation, um, a heart condition you know well about, um, where your heart beats irregularly and very fast. And at that time, I was um, just qualified, uh, left six years of medical school, was working as a junior doctor. And I was going through the whole uh, conventional treatment, I was about to have an ablation. And my mum suggested to me that I should look at my lifestyle and look at my diet. And as a conventionally trained doctor who hadn't had any nutrition training or or anything to do with sort of lifestyle uh, or anything outside of the conventional paradigm, I was very, very skeptical. And then I came across uh, your work uh, and eventually some of your talks. And and that really, uh, in conjunction with my mum, who's not a medic, um, and a few other things, was really uh, the path that I started taking it. And that actually led to resolution of a lot of my medical issues and has started me on this journey. So I just wanted to start by saying a heartfelt thank you to all the work that you've done, you continue to do, because it, it certainly impacted me personally and is impacting thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Well, thank you, uh, Rupi. It's a pleasure to be uh, on your podcast. I, uh, like you, uh, didn't have much nutrition research uh, during medical training, and I felt that was wrong. Uh, but what I did have is I had a lot of real scientific training combined with clinical training. And what that allowed me to do is to combine, to join those forces 
um, to have a really rigorous and scientific understanding of of how food influences our health. And what led me to write the book Eat to Beat Disease uh, is the fact that, you know, I, I, like so many people, uh, am confused by all the news and misinformation that's out there about, you know, a particular superfood or a super supplement that, you know, on one day is uh, curative and the next day is completely uh, debunked. And so uh, I, I really wanted to um, take a serious approach to understanding how food influences our body. And when it comes to food and health, it's not just about the food. What I discovered is that it's as much about how our body responds to what we put inside it. And just like how we think about pharmaceuticals uh, in uh, traditional medicine, uh, this approach of understanding how the body responds to um, what we consume gives us a new way to um, think about how to eat to beat disease. I wanted to ask, um, before we get into your incredible book, um, I love the framework, you know, the, the, um, uh, the different uh, food systems or, or the, the different bodily systems that you talk about, angiogenesis and the microbiota, etc. Um, before we get into that, I kind of want to know a bit more about your story because you, you come from an Asian background, uh, you clearly didn't have that much nutrition training during medical school. Um, was there anything that kind of compelled you to go down this path um, beyond the beyond the fact that it was quite unfair to, to not have nutrition training during medical school? Right. Well, I, you know, I, I was a, uh, I, I practiced for a time uh, in a hospital for veterans. And these uh, specialized hospitals in the U.S. Uh, are um, designed to serve the people who served the country in the, in the active military um, at some point in their life and later in life uh, provide health care for them. We call that the Veterans Administration uh, Medical Centers. And when I was at the VA, as we called it, um, these were some of my favorite patients. They were in their 60s and 70s and some in their 80s. So you're talking about people who you know, um, are quite advanced in age. And many of them were you know, um, massively overweight with all the problems you'd expect, heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, cancer, um, a host of of um, uh, uh, conditions that were that are serious and very costly. Uh, so what would I do is I would do the diagnosis and I would write them prescriptions or send them to see other specialists um, for, for their care. And uh, and I was very confident in that part of it. And these very grateful and gracious patients would put on their jackets and they'd say, "Well, how long do I have? And how serious is it?" And then I would hand them the prescriptions. And they would leave my office and before the door closed, they would pop their head back in and say, hey, doc, um, one more thing. What could I do for myself? Is there anything that I should be eating? And that really caught me like a deer in the proverbial headlights where I realized without the training, without an answer, uh, it seemed like I could do I could do everything else for them except answer that really fundamental question. And here's here's really the irony of it. Um, The veterans. Uh, that I was taking care of, uh, they could not serve in the U.S. military unless they were in top physical condition when they were in their 20s. And they were in horrible condition. And I realized that their diet and lifestyle must have played a role in taking these fit, cut, buff um, defenders of a nation and and really uh, uh, jeopardizing their health. And I realized not only did I not have an answer to their question, 
I needed to actually delve further into understanding what led to the kind of the deterioration of their health. And that those two forces kind of converged to um, make me passionate, not just about treatment. So I am a a fully trained conventional medical doctor and I helped to develop drugs. So I believe in the judicious use of the right medicines at the right time. But I also realized there was a missing tool in the toolbox to prevent disease and also to be able to help answer that question, how foods could amplify the, the treatment of disease. And that really led to my, my journey uh, to write the book. And I think, you know, your experiences, yes, a conventionally trained uh, medical doctor, but someone who's also been involved in the um, procurement and uh, development of uh, many FDA approved pharmaceuticals um, and other interventions, you know, really does add a lot of credibility and gravitas to this field of food as medicine that can be, as you said, um, misinterpreted and uh, over-sensationalized in the media. So I think it's super important to have pioneers like yourself, you know, really leading the conversation of this and actually providing a framework uh, for, for people like myself and, and the public to think about food choices in the prevention uh, and in some cases treatment of ill health. Right, I, I, precisely. That's exactly what I think the medical community needs to begin uniting is to figure out um, how our diet and how food becomes a tool in the toolbox so that we don't become solely reliant on uh, medications, um, surgery, and other more traditional procedures. And we have a more truly um, patient-centered approach that uh, is more comprehensive. And you know, I also believe very strongly that health care is actually what it happens to a patient between the visits that they have to a doctor's office or a hospital. And so how do we address and amplify our understanding and help people become more uh, uh, empowered uh, to really perform that type of health care? That's something I'm very committed to. Yeah, and I love that sort of uh, understanding of, you know, healthcare exists on a, on a continuum and actually the snapshots by which we as practitioners see patients is a very minuscule amount in terms of their actual healthcare journey. And actually a lot of the health and well-being is, is happening outside of the clinician's office. And this is where, you know, your your book beautifully dovetails what we can, uh, what can do to patients and give them the tools to, um, to, to look after the health. And, and so let's uh, segue beautifully into that. So I, I love the framework of the book. I love the symmetry of it, you know, the five different defense systems, um, the uh, more that the exploration into the evidence behind food as medicine is the second part of the book. Um, why don't we dive into some of the different areas? And I think angiogenesis is something that is dear to you, uh, being the uh, foundation lead. Um, why don't we d describe exactly what we mean by angiogenesis and how uh, this fits into the idea of the homeostatic mechanisms of the body, something that's kind of foreign to most conventional doctors because we don't really talk about balance in that respect as, as other sort of traditional medicine systems do, like Ayurveda or Chinese medicine. Right. No, no, that's a, that's a really great starting point for, um, uh, for our conversation. So, look, um, uh, uh, we all know that 
what our grandmothers told us, which is that you know we have to be we have to have have healthy defenses in our body to be able to um, resist disease, and that's why every grandmother you know um, try to keep you warm and make sure you're warmly dressed and fed you chicken soup and all those kinds of. Um, uh, pearls of wisdom that that you know almost every child has the experience um, but but really medical science tells us a lot more about those defense systems and I write about five of them that are very important because each of the five health defense systems that um, I discovered um, can be activated by our food so let's first talk about what the defense systems are and then I'll, I'll uh, we'll start with angiogenesis but I mean, essentially, from the time we're born to our very last breath, our health is actually defined not as the absence of disease, which is how most people think about it. If you're not sick, you must be well. But in fact, our health is really the result of these defense systems that are um, firing on all cylinders, working as you know at their top at their top form um, as hard as they can to help us repel disease and maintain healthy function. So there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes um, uh, to prevent uh, sickness. Now, how do we know this? For example, we know that, um, uh, I mean, just being alive is full of risks. So when you go out to, on a sunny day to go to the beach, we know that ultraviolet radiation is terribly damaging to our DNA and can cause skin cancer, and yet we don't actually develop, most of us don't develop skin cancers after, you know, just a, a single afternoon at the beach, even though our DNA is damaged. Um, so our body's health defenses um, uh, repel and fix the damage that could be caused. Another uh, example that I give is that if you, know, if you drive a car still that uses petrol, and you're at the filling station and you are pumping gas into your car, uh, the question that I, that, get, that I ask is, do you stand upwind or downwind? Which is a surprising question um, to some, but if you stand downwind, uh, you're smelling, you're able to smell the fumes. And if you smell those fumes, that those solvents in the petrol are damaging your DNA in your lungs, inside your lungs, and yet you don't develop lung cancer, um, you know, after filling up your, your car um, with petrol. And so why is that? It's because our body's defenses are fully at work to be able to um, uh, uh, repair the damage and prevent um, terrible diseases from occurring. So let's take it for granted that living life on planet Earth as humans is a risky behavior at best. Our body's defense systems are the ones that are hard at work. I come up with five of them, and one of them is called angiogenesis. Um, angiogenesis is a fancy word that means the, how our bodies grow blood vessels, and our blood vessels are absolutely vital because they bring oxygen and nutrients to every single cell in our body. So literally, our lives depend on our circulation. So um, what's amazing about our, our circulation is there's 60,000 miles worth of blood vessels packed into the average body. And if that's so enormous that if you were to pull out all the blood vessels and line them up end to end, you'd form a line that would encircle the earth twice. So such a huge, powerful, important, um, massive health defense system um, must be carefully controlled in the body so you have just the right number of blood vessels, meaning that if you didn't have enough, our, your cells would get, be starved and your healthy cells would be starved. And, and in fact, we know that if you cut off the blood supply to your heart, you have a heart attack. If you cut off your blood supply to your brain, you have a stroke. 
And we know that if you don't have good circulation, if you have a cut or even a wound, it won't heal very well. So the body has to be able to um, stimulate or grow blood vessels um, uh, back to the healthy, balanced state of just what you need. On the other hand, if you have too many blood vessels or blood vessels growing out of control, that can be equally catastrophic. A great example, for example, is, is in uh, a condition of aging called macular degeneration where it's a, a very frequent cause of blindness when blood vessels grow underneath the back of the eye and, and, and leaks fluid, uh, which then prevents you from seeing. Same thing in diabetes, diabetic retinopathy can do the same thing. Uh, and, and so in those situations, you wanna beat back those unwanted extra blood vessels and another great example of where angiogenesis out of control is a serious situation is in cancer because we all form little microcancers in our body all the time. That's just a, a fact of life. Uh, think about a pimple growing on your skin. Uh, a tumor can't grow larger than about two millimeters in diameter, which is the you know about the, the size of the tip of a ballpoint pen. It can't get any bigger because it lacks a blood supply. But the moment that the cancer figures out how to hijack angiogenesis, it can actually uh, uh, cause the tumor, once it's fed, to grow 16,000 times in only two weeks. So um, what the body wants to do is to prevent those extra blood vessels from growing. And the great news that I discovered is that foods can, on one hand, help foster the development of healthy blood vessels to feed the cells and healthy organs we want, on one hand, back to balance. And on the other hand, there are foods that can actually uh, cut off the blood supply, the unwanted blood supply to diseases and help us remain in health, a healthy state of balance of the defense system called angiogenesis. And this is, this is fantastic. I mean, there's a couple of points there I just wanted to pick up on. The fact that, yes, human existence is essentially a dangerous exercise. And it provides a lot of um, reassurance to us that our bodies are incredible machines that can withstand the radiation that exists in a normal atmosphere. Some people who choose to smoke, uh, smoke for years every single day before they succumb to some serious uh, medical issues. Not that we're recommending anyone smokes. Um, but also food is almost like a chameleon. It, it, it can also can have angio, uh, pro-angiogenic effects as well as antiogenic effects. But it doesn't mean to say that you know, we can use uh, food in a prescriptive way because we can't really override the set points of angiogenesis as you state in your book as well. And this is where I think it, there lies an, a really important opportunity and somewhat missed opportunity up until now where we can actually use food in a, in a more targeted way. Well, that's absolutely correct. I mean, and, and I think that it's the, um, it's the tool for health and, and disease uh, that's been hidden in plain sight. And as you pointed out earlier, uh, Ruby, is um, there are many cultures and the medicines of many ancient cultures that have recognized the importance of this. And I think in modern Western medicine, we are now just beginning to recognize that uh, uh, there's a whole area that needs to be discovered, or really, if you take a global um, view of it, it's kind of rediscovered uh, by the West. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Western practitioner, so for me, it's a, 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 it's a, uh, it is a treasure trove of opportunities. And, you know, I'm beginning to see more and more that fellow medical doctors are not just 
not only interested, but they're willing to engage in that conversation and ask um, questions about, um, well, 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 what works and why and, and how do we know and what's the evidence? And instead of just being a skeptic, they're really asking um, in questions that allow them to learn. Absolutely. And, and I think it comes from, you know, the, the different levels of evidence that we have. You know, we, we demonstrate associations with epidemiology. Um, we can then look at mechanisms and looking a little bit more under the hood with in vitro and in vitro vivo studies. And then, you know, there's human trials as well, many of which you've talked about in your book, which is great to see. Um, w with regards to angiogenesis, I wanted to pick up on a couple of ingredients that I thought were particularly noteworthy. There's a lot of noteworthy stuff in the book, but um, a couple of things, soy in particular uh, and the isoflavones that have an impact on, on uh, risk of cancer, um, as well as uh, the stuff around grains as well and the um, pro-angiogenic effects of beta-glucans and lignans. So I think there's a lot of scaremongering about whether people should be eating grains at all, but um, soy and, and soy as well. And I, and I think, I mean, I'm a big advocate of a plant-focused diet, something that's plant-rich, and soy is definitely on the menu for me. Right. Well, um, you know, uh, this is where uh, the power of science and evidence uh, comes into full uh, um, uh, benefit for to help clear up confusion. And uh, soy is an important uh, protein source for much of the world, um, especially in Asia, but I think increasingly even in other countries. And um, uh, and it's got a kind of a scary reputation over the last few years because um, uh, uh, some people have felt that the phytoestrogen or plant estrogen in soy could be risky for women who might develop an estrogen. Um, responsive cancer or who have had breast cancer uh, 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 that is um, that is hormonally sensitive in other words the human estrogen uh, is linked to um, uh, breast cancer but uh, and so so the really the urban legend but it's not just in the pop populace um, I hear I, I, I encounter uh, physicians medical doctors that also um, uh, say the same thing I think they're just repeating what they've heard uh, that it's led to this um, uh, mythology that uh, eating soy is dangerous and it could re increase the risk of breast cancer in women and if you are a woman who is at high risk for breast cancer um, uh, or who has had it you need to stay away from soy at all costs well that is uh, now been overturned very convincingly by evidence because we know that while soy um, has phytoestrogens or plant estrogens, those plant estrogens look nothing like and function nothing like human estrogens. In fact, they don't even look the same, you know, if you to look at the chemical structures. In fact, the plant estrogen acts a bit like the medicine tamoxifen, which blocks the estrogen receptor. And so, you know, the, the, from the research side, we believe that soy is not only safe, it actually can have an estrogen blocking effect similar to the ways to the medicines we use to treat breast cancer. So let's talk about the evidence in, in, in humans. It turns out a study of 5,000 women who already had breast cancer published in a major medical journal called the Journal of the American Medical Association found that those women with breast cancer who ate more soy, higher soy consumption, had a almost 30% lower risk of mortality. In other words, the more soy they ate, the more the better they survived. And for the women whose breast cancers had been successfully treated, 
the more um, uh, soy they ate, the less chance that, about 30%, less chance the uh, cancer would come back. And so again, this is the exact uh, opposite in a large study, study of 5,000 women um, to disprove the urban legend. So, and by the way, how much soy do you need to eat to achieve that beneficial effect? Well, calculating from the study, the, the amount of soy that can do the trick seems to be about 10 um, grams of soy protein a day. That's about the amount of soy protein in one cup, one glass of soy milk. So not a difficult amount to achieve. What about, you know, and, and you know, critics will say, well, that's just one study, it's epidemiology, it's not that convincing if you can't repeat it. Well, I will tell you that um, there's a meta-analysis, which is, you know, taking a look at a lot of different studies and seeing what the average result is. There, um, is a, there has been a meta-analysis of 14 studies of the risk uh, between eating soy and breast cancer in every single study, 14 studies. The, it's, it, they've been shown that the benefit of eating soy is uh, better outcomes, better survival, and less mortality in the context of breast cancer. So this is one example that we now know what the mechanism is because one of the phytoestrogens in uh, soy uh, called genistein is not only an estrogen blocker, it actually is anti-angiogenic, meaning it cuts off the blood supply feeding cancers or it starves the cancer um, uh, through uh, by, by helping to try to normalize uh, angiogenesis or circulation back to where it needs to be and away from the tumor. And so that's just one example that I read about in, in my book, Eat to Beat Disease, that actually addresses directly head on using science and evidence uh, a a um, a uh, a statement or a thought about a food that is often confusing for women. Yeah, I'm really glad that you uh, cleared up the confusion on that because I think it's definitely something that I I come across quite a bit uh, uh, in the media, and I'm I'm often asked loads of questions about it. So I'm really glad we touched on those different topics, and particularly the mechanism of action by which phytoestrogens are fundamentally different to estrogens. Um, and there's, there's, you know, a whole plethora of effects beyond cancer as well that I'm aware of in terms of uh, menopausal symptoms, particularly postmenopause, uh, and reducing the risk of other chronic uh, uh, lifestyle-related illnesses. Um, going back to uh, the pro-angiogenic effects of grains and uh, beta-leucans and lignans, this is this is a section I found particularly interesting, actually, um, w w particularly with regard to you know uh, conditions that need uh, more angiogenesis. And 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 again, again, it goes back to this effect of balance and why food. Actually, with a shotgun approach, with a whole bunch of different foods and making sure that you're getting more whole and less processed foods, your body kind of intrinsically knows what to do with these ingredients and the foods as well positively impact them as well. Yes, that's right. Well, um, so we all know that uh, uh, foods, some foods can block our circulation, like the ones with saturated fat and, uh, you know, some of the fatty foods and red meats and all. But, you know, it's a wonderful discovery that there are some foods that can actually help us grow our circulation to get better blood flow. And there's a number of foods that can do this. You mentioned, you know, sort of grains and grains and seeds. You know, um, ancient grains were the staple in the diet of, of humans, you know, in, in, in sort of earlier civilizations. And what's amazing is that processed foods, which we know aren't good for you, often also are made with a lot of grains, except that the processed foods have removed a lot. They've, they've kind of basically processed the grain 
removed all the good stuff on the shell um, uh, around the grain. And, and what's now been studied is if you go back and look at uh, grains like barley, for example, uh, and, and look at other the shell of other grains, um, it's very rich in a natural chemical called beta-D-glucan. Uh, and what beta-D-glucan does, it does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is it actually helps grow blood vessels in oxygen-starved tissues. And the research I read about, which I found fascinating, was done in Italy where they took um, uh, the beta-glucan from barley and they made it into a pasta. And then they fed it in the laboratory to uh, animals, mice in particular, that actually needed better blood flow. And they found that it could indeed be very, very effective in growing blood flow. And in fact, what it did is it actually helped to uh, reduce the amount of damage that could be caused by a heart attack. So this was like a research uh, model to look at um, what might happen in a human heart attack and 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 just putting the uh, 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 the beta deglucan from barley uh, into the food could have a dramatic effect by growing new blood vessels but it's not just barley there are other and it's not just beta deglucan there's other natural chemicals um, like these lignans now you know the Lignans are, are interesting because they're not a single substance I think this is where the public also gets Confused. What's a lignin? What's a lectin? Are they bad guys? Are they good guys? Look, what science allows us to do is to pick out very specific ones that are studied and demonstrate them. So there's one lignin, which is a natural bioactive um, that has been shown to stimulate angiogenesis again, you know, in the context of an experimental heart attack. Um, just feeding uh, the uh, uh, the lignin uh, from from grain. Uh, by the way, what are the grains? Uh, grains are the grains that were studied are things like seeds, like flax seeds, sunflower seeds. You know, those are the papitas, uh, sesame seeds, or pumpkin seeds, um, even chia seeds. So, you know, what's very popular in, in the health food sections actually now the science is starting to help us define in what ways they're beneficial. So um, uh, by eating the lignans that come from seeds, uh, the researchers were able to find that you could actually increase the protein in the injured tissue in the heart that could help grow blood vessels. And in fact, you know, you could actually grow 33% uh, 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 more blood vessels if you're eating these seed-based uh, lignans. And in fact, you had more efficient pumping of the heart because it's being fed, um, uh, uh, given more oxygen and, and being fed better by the circulation. So that's just one example, seeds and grains. But also, you know, there's other interesting uh, food products that can grow blood vessels, including fruit peel. So there is a another chemical called ursolic acid that's found in the peel of, uh, of uh, fruits like um, uh, apple peel, for example. Uh, you know, many times people who eat an apple, well, we know an apple day is supposed to keep the doctor away, but many people peel the apple and throw the, the, the skin away, and they're just eating the flesh, which, you know, is very tasty. Turns out that that peel is highly enriched with something called ursolic acid that can grow new blood vessels in your under your skin, in your legs, in your muscles for circulation. So, um, so I, I I think that I'm, I encourage people to really think about eating the fruit skin. You got to wash the fruit obviously really well. And here's and you know another um, consideration when you're trying to choose between organic versus non-organic. 
um, uh, you know, the organic uh, fruits haven't been sprayed with pesticides, which would make them um, uh, a little safer to eat if you're going to eat the peel. I think, you know, at the end of uh, your book, what people would recognize is actually, uh, uh, I mean, it's fascinating to find out about angiogenesis and how foods impact particular pathways. Then you get like a whole plethora of different uh, parts of the body and different uh, ways in which people can improve their, their health using the singular foods because it has a ple- essentially pleiotropic effects. And this is a nice segue into the different effects that it can have on the microbiota, stem cells, genetic integrity, and immune support. Um, I specifically wanted to speak to you about stem cells because I think this is absolutely fascinating, particularly in an era where people are thinking more about biotech industries where you know injecting stem cells to regenerate uh, lost tissue and there is a huge uh, interest in the field of gerontology which is something that we've spoken about previously in the podcast with david sinclair and a few other folks um but we can really do this with food uh, and i was really interested in uh, cacao or cocoa uh, and a few of the studies there, as well as the other sort of more uh, generally accepted uh, fruits and veggies that you can find in most grocery stores and how that can impact um, your EPCs. You know, when we were, so stem cells and regeneration is a topic that's kind of a biotech uh, topic often. Um, you know, when you and I were in grade school, we were probably taught, like most of your listeners as well, <clears throat> that, that you know, some animals can regenerate. Starfish can regenerate an arm if they lose one. A salamander can regenerate a limb if they happen to lose it. Um, and unfortunately, we were taught that we were taught that unfortunately humans can't regenerate. Um, so what we what we have is what we got. Um, but actually, the science is actually telling us it's not true. In fact, that entire um, chapter in the textbook of 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 how humans heal has been ripped out and thrown out. We now know that humans do regenerate. We regenerate every single day. That's why our hair grows back. That's why, you know, if you ever ate, you know, um, any uh, uh, crisps and you, you know, that were really sharp and you uh, uh, scraped your your mouth and like really had a terrible experience with that, you know, within a day, your, 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 the lining of your mouth heals back up and you can eat regularly again. That's a type of regeneration. But um, it's much more powerful than that our liver regenerates. In fact, you can cut out two part, two thirds of our liver. Um, a surgeon can t- remove two thirds of our liver and uh, and leave only one third, and the rest of the liver will grow back and regenerate exactly like it's supposed to be. Um, we know that our organs regenerate as well, and they regenerate other other organs. And we they regenerate using stem cells. You mentioned the word EPC, which is end- endothelial progenitor cell, but and but there's a number of different types of stem cells, including in our skin. What is interesting is that we don't regenerate very quickly. I mean, some organs can regenerate pretty quickly, but most of them don't. They kind of work on a slower uh, pace. Uh, and, and so um, while the biotech companies are trying to develop stem cells you can inject into the joints or you know, the, 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 primarily the joints, but other parts of the body, um, what I got interested in is looking at the science on how foods can actually stimulate stem cells as well. And, you know, the, the one that you mentioned first, which is cocoa or cacao, you know, cocoa is coming from cacao, which is the seed pod that <clears throat> from which um, chocolate is made. Now, chocolate's a confection. Um, cocoa is a powder version of, uh, uh, that's, uh, of, of the cacao that's actually used to make uh, the confection, the, the candy. 
Um, but but cocoa is you know what you hear about when they're saying like is it seventy percent is it eighty percent is it ninety percent um, uh, uh, cocoa that number is what we're looking for that's the original like the full test stuff uh, from the the from the seed pod and it turns out that that cocoa uh, contains flavanols these are natural chemicals that actually do a lot of things including they can uh, recruit and prompt and activate stem cells in our body. So I read about this um, uh, really fascinating uh, research study in um, uh, six-year-old men who actually had heart disease. Uh, so these are people who already have compromised circulation and they were given um, a, a hot chocolate, a hot cocoa drink um, uh, that uh, is, is using co co a cocoa that's like really dark cocoa they drank um, the hot cocoa for 30 days and what they found is that drinking the hot cocoa alone that's the only thing they did that was different from their regular lives uh, doubled the number of stem cells circulating in their bloodstream by drinking just uh, two cups of hot cocoa a day for for a month and then they measured the blood flow because the stem cells can help to improve your circulation and improve your blood flow by uh, repairing and regenerating the lining of your blood vessels um, uh, that actually they doubled their blood flow as well. Double the stem cells, double the blood flow um, with two cups of, of hot chocolate. You know, when I, when I talk about this, um, I often have to preface this by saying, uh, you know, who needs another excuse to like chocolate? But I'm going to give you a really surprising uh, uh, scientific fact that's been studied in humans. And it really is um, it, 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 it's not only good news if you're a chocolate lover, but it, but it also um, uh, uh, helps to uh, show just how much we still have to discover about our foods. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, some of the techniques that we're currently using when it comes to uh, testing the efficacy of food, things like flow-mediated dil uh, dilatation, uh, looking at the nitric oxide uh, synthesis and vessels, you know, it's, it's really encouraging to see this amount of research. I, in fact, um, I actually met one of the researchers on my master's uh, uh, course, uh, which is quoted in your book from the University of Reading. They, they do a lot of work with uh, berries and flavanols and just the, the mechanisms that are being proposed uh, really do mirror some of the things that, or the degree uh, of um, accuracy that, you know, that we're looking at with pharmaceuticals. So it is super encouraging to see like a real rigorous scientific approach to this. One of the things that I'm just conscious of, of your time as well, Dr. Lee, um, uh, one of the things that I found really astounding was in the microbiota section or your, your gut health section, um, uh, looking at kimchi and the impact on oral, oral glucose tolerance tests, something that we perform in primary care in the UK quite often, and how increasing uh, probiotic consumption could have a marked impact on glucose sensitivity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I personally found that absolutely fascinating. And someone who's obsessed with the gut microbe, the gut microbiota, that, that was brilliant. Well, uh, here's, here's another kind of uh, uh, exploding area of discovery that is you know, good news. In a world where we are surrounded almost daily with bad news of some sort, um, uh, you know, I, I think medical research is really helping us get some good news that I like to talk about, and that is we're beginning to realize that our um, that uh, our bodies are filled with bacteria. And while most doctors, I'm sure you and I, were um, going through medical school, we were taught that most bacteria were bad. We didn't really know what the good bacteria are. 
we now know that the that the good bacteria um, in in many ways uh, is overwhelms the bad bacteria, and that's why we're healthy. But we need to understand more about the good bacteria and what the role is. And it turns out that good bacteria don't infect us; they kind of form an ecosystem, a, a beneficial neighborhood of good actors, you know, in our gut. Now they're actually present in our skin, they're present in our mucous membranes, anywhere we have an orifice, um, there's also bacteria, but in the gut is, you know, they estimate, you know, in the trillions, like as many as 39 trillion bacteria that actually live in our bodies. Um, so in fact, we're not actually technically only human, we are also, you know, almost a one-to-one -one level bacteria as well. So there's a, I read about in my book, this interesting concept of, of um, there's a term that describes a single organism, or a single entity that's made of different organisms, more than one species of organism, and that's called a holobiont. And so what's kind of an amusing uh, construct is that as we learn more about our microbiome, we are no longer just human. So we're really kind of holobiont. So um, what we when we when we want to do well by our gut bacteria, we can eat prebiotics, which feed which are foods that we might not absorb, but are but feed the, our bacteria. But we can also eat bacteria itself. And among you know the kinds of fermented foods that we have, fermented foods are a great source of bacteria because that's what happens when you're fermenting. The bacteria grow on the foods, and then they're all and then they change from you know, maybe some sketchy bacteria to mostly good bacteria to all good bacteria and into tasty foods. The food itself becomes transformed, not only in terms of its taste and its texture, but also in terms of the makeup of the bacteria. Kimchi, which, you know, many people love to eat. It's, a, you know, the national food of Korea, um, is cabbage and spices and garlic and chilies all mixed together. And they used to bury them into um, ceramic pots in the ground in cool weather and it's amazing. Like it's a, it's like a flavor bomb. If you've had almost anything with kimchi, makes it, you know, gives you like this umame, um, delicious mouthwatering flavor. And, and you know, and it can be spicy. But what's interesting is that eating eating kimchi actually uh, feeds the bacteria, in part by contributing bacteria, but also the kimchi, which has got cabbage and stuff, also providing prebiotics. So it's, you know, it's usually not only one thing, like a, a fermented food like kimchi is giving some prebiotic and probiotic, helping to flush out the neighborhood of good bacteria in your gut. And when the neighborhood of bacteria is happy and healthy, what, here's what the surprise is. We're beginning to realize that, though, that there's a gut connection to our brains, a gut connection to our immune system, and gut connection to our metabolism, where when the gut is really happy, um, like you would get after eating kimchi, it actually metabolizes blood sugar more effectively. And so you mentioned something called the glucose tolerance test, and that's basically kind of a, a simple way that doctors use to um, give um, an individual a swig of sugary water and then measuring in their blood um, some minutes after, a couple of hours after, um, how well the body processes that and absorbs and takes down the sugar. And it turns out that um, eating kimchi in a research study showed that it improved um, the sugar metabolism by 33% in improvement. Um, and that's in the same patient, by the way. So they tested this before eating kimchi, how well they you know, handled sugar, and then after uh, eating kimchi. So just eating kimchi 
um, you, you improves an individual's ability uh, to be able to uh, improve uh, the the glucose. Uh, tolerance and then you know kimchi is not just um, fermented there's, there's also freshly made kimchi so you know the stuff that hasn't been sitting around and all the bacteria doing their thing but you can just make the same flavoring of cabbage and chilies and garlic and stuff like that fresh the fresh doesn't have the same makeup as the uh, bacteria so it's mostly a prebiotic as opposed to a probiotic it turns out that when you compare the fermented uh, probiotic kimchi compared to the fresh that the glucose tolerance test has improved three and a half times better with the fermented stuff compared wow. to the fresh stuff. So, you know, uh, anybody who loves Korean food, you know, or go to your Asian market and find um, kimchi, I mean, especially now, you know, everybody's concerned, like, you know, the virus idea, uh, coronavirus, everything is on everybody's mind. Look, um, we don't have a vaccine yet. We don't actually have uh, a cure yet. But what we can do is make decisions of things that we can eat that can actually help um, stack the deck as much as possible in our favor. So besides isolating and all that kind of stuff, you know, I mean, actually eating kimchi might be something that people might want to consider. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, th I think uh, I, I was recently putting out some posts about how we can uh, improve and support our immune health um, through the choices that we make every single day, in addition to the obvious ones of hand washing and uh, isolating where necessary. Um, I, I also love the section of the, uh, where you, you talk about a study where they actually pulverized the probiotic to the point where you had the dead bacterial uh, material in the food, and yet it still exerted some of those beneficial effects uh, on the uh, on the host um, which I think is, is good for people to know as well that yeah, it doesn't always have to be probiotics although there are benefits from a taste perspective and uh, a potential uh, um, uh, impact perspective as well this is a lovely segue into the immune section um, which I think is uh, of particular relevance uh, due to your interest in, in cancer therapy uh, and immunotherapy. And it's certainly something that I think a lot more people are beginning to understand a, a lot more about. Um, I discussed inflammation in a chapter of my, my last book uh, and how it's kind of a misunderstood uh, concept where everyone everything about inflammation is thought of as bad and we have to remove all inflammation. But inflammation is a very important process that has allowed us to survive and evolve and uh, and actually fight off pathogens. But um, you describe some of the, the foods and the ways in which we utilize uh, immune health beautifully in the book. And I thought it would be a great, uh, great place to, to, to talk about considering the, the current viral situation. Right. Well, uh the in the popular community, uh, uh, most people have considered uh, inflammation to be a bad guy, uh, something that you don't want to have in your body, and you want to get rid of it. So, you know, thinking about diet and health, most people are talking have been talking about anti-inflammatory foods. But like everything else in the medical world and in the scientific world, things aren't always black and white. And, you know, as I say, the God is in the details, so we need to have a finer understanding of the immune system. And as medical doctors, as, as, as physicians, we are given the education to understand that the immune system is very, very complex. I mean, so basically, again, as a defense mechanism, protecting us against the bacteria that, you know, we breathe in every day. You don't have to go to a, 
you know, a dirty, disgusting area to be breathing in bacteria. All you have to do is to open your refrigerator, you know, and, and you're probably smelling some bacteria or, or, you know, when you're um, sitting down on the couch, um, you know, um, as, as you displace the pillows on the couch, there's bacteria that are being um, uh, mobilized into the air. We're breathing it in. We don't get pneumonia. We don't get terribly sick most of the time. So what's actually happening? Well, it turns out that our, our body is coated with mucous membrane. Well, first of all, our skin protects bacteria from invading inside us, so it's kind of like a shell. You know, we're not a crab with a crab shell, but we're, we have a sort of a soft, leathery surface, our skin, that protects us from invasion. But if we do actually have invasion, whether it's through the skin or through your mucous membrane, so, you know, through your eyes, through your mouth, through your nose, um, other mucous membranes as well, um, could be the vagina, could be the anus, uh, could be the urethra. The, the bottom line is that there's a first line of defense uh, in which specialized immune cells are like, uh, uh, they're, they're like policemen that will run to the mucous membrane. These are immune policemen uh, as first responders, right? Um, to be able to see what's going on. And if they see um, uh, some action happening that shouldn't be happening, like an invasion uh, by bacteria, by an unwanted bacteria, an unrecognized bacteria, what they'll do is they will immediately surround the bacteria and they will take it out. In order to take out the bacteria at that level, there is a little bit, you know, the policemen kind of get there as first responders, they sound their whistle, they call in other um, uh, forces to, you know, particularly if it's uh, a really bad uh, bacteria, and these other forces are really the immune, uh, they're all part of the immune system, um, launch a bit of inflammation, and that inflammation is like putting a flamethrower to the bacteria. It goes there, it actually just like, you know, lights a match, and blows away the bacteria, and then there's a cleanup crew that comes and just removes them. This is all part of immunity, so you want the first responders, you want the you know the destroyers of the bacteria, and then you want the cleanup crew uh, to be there. So when we talk about immune uh, inflammation, we are actually talking about way more than you know simply um, a process of of destroying things. Now, if the inflammation gets out of control, yeah, it can actually be damaging to normal systems, but we really need to understand that a little bit of inflammation is actually very important to our health. So we, we, we want to be able to protect our, our, our immune system, we need to protect our points of entry, we need some inflammation to be able to come wipe out um, bad players, we need other immune cells that circulate in our body and look for bad guys that might have gone into our bloodstream. And then we need to be able to clean up and clean out uh, 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 in, uh, invaders that have been uh, tackled already. And, and you know that's probably the simplest way to explain this. And different foods activate different parts of that immune defense. And we've spoken a bit about the different types of foods already in different sections of your book uh, with regards to probiotics and, and gut-friendly uh, ingredients, lots, just lots of different fibers and legumes, uh, nuts and seeds. Um, are there any specific ones that you uh, you would talk about in, with, with regards to inflammation and, um, and immune health? One of, the, one of sort of the follow-ons to the explanation of the immune system is that when the immune system is overactive in terms of inflammation, that can cause a problem. So if you have overactive anything, any of these defenses, if they're overactive, like angiogenesis we talked about, too much angiogenesis, bad, too little angiogenesis, bad, immunity, too little immunity, bad, that's like an HIV or AIDS, um, too much uh, immunity, uh, like in lupus uh, or in many of these autoimmune diseases, 
that's also bad because then the inflammation winds up not just destroying the bad guys that are invading your body, but they also start to destroy your normal tissues as well. A couple of uh, things that I think are noteworthy for um, calming the inflammatory part of, uh, of your immune system is vitamin C. Uh, and that's simple enough because you can you can take a, a vitamin that you can take a vitamin C vitamin tablet, um, or you can actually um, eat citrus fruit, which I prefer. Um, and uh, there was an interesting study to look at this in women in Japan uh, who actually had lupus. So that, this is a bad autoimmune disease where their bodies get inflamed. They go, you know, they have these flares, these terribly painful, debilitating flares of lupus. Um, uh, uh, and um, they found that the women who actually ate lots of vitamin C containing foods like oranges had a much lower uh, rate, um, like a 74% decrease rate of actually having lupus flares, meaning their immune system calmed down if they ate foods containing vitamin C. And they figured out that, you know, it, it was about, the, to get this benefit was about people who are eating about 154 milligrams of vitamin C a day, which is about the amount you find in, you know, about a, a one and a half oranges, which is about the amount you'd, you know, if you were to fresh squeeze into a glass of orange juice, um, very easy to eat. Um, but not, but, but oranges aren't the only ones. You can actually get that amount of vitamin C from a cup and a half of sliced strawberries, which some people may be surprised that strawberries contain vitamin C. And also not just fruits, but broccoli also has it, like two cups of broccoli. Um, uh, have that, that amount of vitamin C or cherry tomatoes. Um, it turned out the equivalent to actually get the lupus calming amount of vitamin C was about um, eight cups of cherry tomatoes. Now eight cups is quite a lot, but if you think about cherry tomatoes, if you were to cook those down into a sauce, a red sauce, eight cups, you know, eight cups of raw tomatoes turns into almost nothing. Like, you know, it's just a very small amount to put in your pasta. So Anyway, so that so it turns out that vitamin C containing foods are good for calming. But what about activating? Like, you know, I think that that's among the most important aspects of activating your immune system. It turns out that mushrooms, again, contain that beta D glucan, which we started our conversation about. In addition to the um, blood vessel growing in a uh, uh, part of beta D glucan, it turns out beta D glucan feeds the microbiome, which we talked about helps the bacteria um, get happier and the bacteria communicate with the immune system uh, and the immune system actually ramps up to help protect us against uh, infections. And those infections could be bacterial or virus. Um, another um, a food that I write about that I thought was so amazing um, uh, that, that the research has been done that uh, I, I strongly recommend people think about this, incorporating this in their own lives is broccoli sprouts. You know, as you get into the springtime, you go to or in any of these farmer markets, um, you can buy sprout, sprouts, right? These are young tendrils of different plants like broccoli. It's like three or four days old, and it kind of looks like a little patch of grass that they actually have. You can get them in a canister. Um, most people put them into a salad, but you can also put them into a blender uh, and uh, create a shake out of it, right? You can add some berries and create a shake. What's amazing is they did a study in young, healthy people um, during the flu season, and they um, gave um, everybody the flu vaccine, uh, which most people should get, uh, and then they actually uh, gave half the people, half the group, um, a shake containing broccoli sprouts, and they it's two cups of the broccoli sprout shake, 
And so if you were to take a measuring uh, cup out and look at two cups of a rock, of a shake, like two cups is not that much, easy to, to down in the morning. And, but, but what they found was really amazing. Like obviously getting the flu vaccine is going to um, uh, ramp up your immune system because uh, you're actually mostly giving a little bit of a, a weakened version of the live flu uh, virus to you to prompt your immune system to, add, to um, develop antibodies against it. It turns out that people who drank the um, broccoli sprout shake and got the flu vaccine had an amazing um, improvement, amping up, boosting of their immune response by 22 times. A broccoli shake plus the flu, flu shot ramps up your immune system 22 times better than just getting the flu shot alone. And the immune cells that, that were produced had more virus-killing power. So, you know, th these are just like a few examples of foods that, of how powerfully foods can turn up or turn down um, our immune defense systems in ways that might be able to help us navigate our lives um, more, uh, more effectively. And, and, and you know, the more research I come across uh, from from people like yourself, your books, which is a great you know collection, a huge library of these different studies, the more enthusiastic I become about the future of food as, like you described it, another clinical tool in our toolbox against disease and uh, promoting well-being. Well, I'm really interested to, in your opinion on when do you think we're going to get to the point where not only when you see your doctor, you're giving preventative medications, in some cases treatment, but also you're going to be given a food prescription, for want of a better word, where it can support your natural body defense systems. And, and is that something that you're currently working on? Um, because if not, I, I reckon this could be a huge area uh, that would be intriguing and interesting to a lot of uh, new doctors who are coming around to this way of thinking. Yeah, I think, uh, Ruby, exactly what you're describing is that new doctors are going to be the more comprehensive physicians of the future. I think most of the doctors who are out in practice today um, were educated and trained in an era where nutrition science was pretty weak or considered to be weak. And without the training, and by the way, I'm sure this may have been your experience as well, uh, I would say that the access to healthy food during the medical school years, which is four years and training, traditionally has been pretty poor. Like if you want to talk about a food desert, <laughs> go, go into a medical school. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, how can we expect doctors to, as they say, um, uh, talk the talk if they don't walk the walk? And so it's only these younger generation people, thankfully, that will be learning this new information and they're going to want to incorporate in their lifestyle and then certainly be able to practice it. And what's interesting, beyond teaching doctors simple nutrition, because this is, by the way, this isn't about just sustenance, proteins, calories, fats, sugars, you know, carbs. What we're talking about is really a whole new area of life science, really understanding not just food, but understanding how the body responds to food. <clears throat> I think it's really, um, uh, there, there needs to be a new field that it, that it goes beyond simply nutrition. It's like physiological nutrition and uh, or, or pathological or pharmacological nutrition, this food is medicine uh, bit. And it turns out that some foods can com be combined with medicine. So I'm actually working in this area as well, which is to say, if you're sick and you're prescribed a medicine for your doctor, 
what else could be recommended to you, if not yet prescribed by your doctor, um, that you can actually take to help uh, boost yourself? So for example, just based on what we just talked about, if you had a virus, I mean, I don't know about coronavirus, but you know, I would dare say this could be helpful. Um, uh, you could try, you know, you've got to eat something. Um, what are you going to eat? There's no guidance to that. And there's no drug companies or governments studying that, although there should be. I mean, look, broccoli, eating broccoli sprouts or having a broccoli sprout shake, you know, if that can boost your uh, defense against a flu by ramping up your response to a flu vaccine by 22 times, why wouldn't you actually, you know, want to um, try a broccoli sprout shake? So, again, I think that food, it's not just food as medicine, that meaning that foods can prevent disease so then you don't need medicine. I'm a big believer that it's food and medicine as well, where we can combine foods at home between the prescriptions you get in a doctor's or treatments you get in a doctor's office or a hospital that can that's really a whole other future and we're beginning already to see this um, uh, in cancer uh, immunotherapy where there's new categories of treatments for cancer that boost the immune system and uh, and what we want to be able to do is um, what we want to be able to do is to um, uh, uh, amplify the body's uh, ability to respond to immune-boosting cancer therapy so you, your system uh, is more active. And a great example of a food, a practically food, is that is pomegranate juice. It turns out that, you know, responders to immune therapy tend to have a bacteria called Acromancia mucinophila. When you don't have that bacteria, it's been now found in cancer patients, it's not as likely you're going to respond to the treatment, which could be life-saving. And you can't eat a Acromancia mucinophila probiotic at, yet at this time, but you can drink pomegranate juice, which helps to secrete the mucus in your gut that that bacteria loves to grow in. So a good way to grow Acromancia is to actually drink pomegranate juice. And so this is now something that cancer oncologists are doing, cancer treatment specialists are doing <clears throat> by encouraging their patients to uh, drink pomegranate juice uh, if they're going to be on immune therapy. Another amazing uh, study was uh, done by 13 hospitals, including Harvard teaching hospitals, um, where they looked at colon cancer patients uh, getting just regular chemotherapy. So, you know, basic, nothing fancy chemotherapy um, uh, that's available to everybody. And they found that the people who ate two handfuls of tree nuts a week um, so, you know, that's not like tree nuts or a walnut, an almond, pistachio, macadamia, the common stuff, um, had a 50% reduction in death from their colon cancer. 50%. Published in major oncology journals that made the headline of the major American Society for Clinical Oncology meeting. And these were all done by, like, not naturopathic doctors. These were done by oncologists that made this observation. Now, if you're a cancer patient, you can't ignore that. If you got colon cancer, if you're an oncologist, you shouldn't ignore that because even though you weren't taught about nuts, the research recently, this came out in 2017, so it's 2020, three years now, well, there's no excuse not to know about this um, as a doctor. So I think that, uh, you know, the medical community is starting to change, although perhaps it's like an aircraft carrier, you know, in the ocean, that the turning radius is very, very uh, uh, big, very wide. It's very slow to change. But this is why um, podcasts like yours, your shows like yours are so important because it's a way to get the word out. And if the doctor doesn't know, the patient can call it to their doctor's attention. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I appreciate that as well. Um, 
Dr. Lee, uh, this has been incredible. I can't wait to promote the book more and uh, for more people to get it in their hands over in the UK as well. Um, it's uh, it's definitely been a pleasure and I really hope we can connect in person where I can actually cook you some of the delicious foods that you've been talking about in your book. And I know from one foodie to another, uh, I, I know just from reading your words that you're you're a huge advocate of like the taste of food as, and the flavor as well as the function of food. Absolutely. It'd be a pleasure to uh, uh, dine and cook with you. I also enjoy cooking. And so we should plan on doing that at some point in the future. Uh, looking forward to, uh, uh, you know, more discoveries to be able to share. Absolutely. Yeah. And Rachel Ray uh, definitely passes on her, her good words. I was very fortunate to, to be on the show with her at the end of last year. And uh, we mentioned you on the show and she mentioned you before as well. And she's a huge fan. And I think you know, it's, uh, it's amazing to have the opportunity to speak to foodies, clinicians, uh, researchers alike, and uh, to, to, you know, really push this message of food as medicine and food and medicine. I really do like that concept. And I think it's got a huge, a huge amount of legs and um, it will be interesting to see what happens in the future. I bet you didn't think that we were going to be talking about stroke, flaxseeds, pumpkins, uh, mushrooms, beta-glucans, macular degeneration, kimchi, or glucose tolerance tests all in the same podcast. But it really is just a snapshot of just how incredible this man's work has been over the last 20 years and counting um, his genuine story, his narrative, and the way he... Uh, the way he approaches this food as medicine field as well, I just think is, is something that we can learn a lot of, um, a lot from on the side of the pond. Um, but also, uh, I think this is uh, certainly one of the podcasts that I hope to listen back to in about 10 years time and just think, oh yeah, we, we do that already now. Like this is something that we just do intuitively and something that the new generation of medics and healthcare professionals understand intuitively. Um, and for that reason, I'm, I'm super grateful for people like him and the ability to, you know, promote his kind of work on my podcast and promote the message as well using Culinary Medicine, um, the nonprofit in the UK and beyond. So I really hope you enjoyed that. Please do give it a five star review if you enjoyed it too. And share this with your colleagues, your friends, if you feel that they could be benefit from the information in this podcast it really does help subscribe to the doctor's kitchen podcast um, and subscribe to the doctorskitchen.com where we give you science-based recipes every single week based on a lot of the research that we talked about on today's show and more as well i will catch you here next time take care softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.